This is getting out of hand. Now there are two of them. Where's your innovation, huh? Sequels suck. Do the same thing. Everyone's happy. It's all about money, boys! Here we go again. Three questions. Where do you come from? Where are you going? How can I profit? Hey guys, and welcome back to Franchise Fatigue. This is a show where we talk about film franchises one movie at a time. Uh, this is the second of two minisodes we're doing over the first two films in the Maze Runner series. Uh, this episode we're going to focus on the Scorch Trials. And to help me talk about it, I am joined with Gabe Green. What's going on, man? Hey, uh, haven't talked to you in forever. It's been like two minutes. I know, it's been a while. Um, yeah, so <laughs> I think I forgot to mention uh, on our last recording is that uh, if you wanted to do a much fuller discussion, much longer discussion on these two films, um, we did lengthy episodes on both of them on our podcast, Underrated. And I'll link... Uh, I'll link to both those episodes in the show notes. So if you if you want to hear more from us, you can just uh, go back and click on that episode. And uh, we talk a lot. All right, so let's just uh, dive right into the main discussion. Uh, James, uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about the uh, making of this film? Yeah, so I couldn't find quite as much on on this one and either the edit, like the the original book or the adaptation. Um, for the book itself, Dashner began writing a sequel pretty quickly following the the successful release of his original one. Um, that was a pretty quick turnaround with only a year uh, between the, the publishing of the first one and the second one. And The film and book have a lot in common there. Yeah, down to uh, release dates, September 18th. Oh, really? Yeah. And so, so the Scorch Trials book was published on September 18th of 2010. Um, and then when it came to making the film, again, there was a really quick turnaround after the success of the first one. In September of 2014, uh, 20th Century Fox announced that a sequel to Maze Runner, which was originally titled The Maze Runner Chapter 2, The Scorch Trials, would be released on September 8th of 2015. And so there wasn't really a whole lot of downtime between the release of, of either the book or the sequel uh, film to to allow for a whole lot of speculating and, and you know, any sort of drama behind the scenes it was kind of just well you know we finished this on to the next yes because t.s nolan had begun writing the script for uh, the scorch trials before maze runner had even started filming and then by the time uh the maze runner was released pre-production for the scorch trials was well underway and i think they, they got filming i think i believe it was five weeks after the release of uh the first film yeah, so uh, pretty much the entirety of the cast uh, returned, aside from poor Chuck uh, and Will Poulter. But we were joined by a considerably larger cast this time. Uh, Rosa Salazar as Brenda, Giancarlo Esposito as uh, Jorge, Aiden Gillen as A.D. Jansen, um, Jacob Laughlin as Eris Jones, Barry Pepper as Vince, Lily Taylor as Mary Cooper, um, Alan Tudyk who's always awesome, as Marcus, uh, Natalie Emanuel as Harriet, Catherine McNamara as Sonia. Um, and the funny thing is, like, most, almost all these people were cast, like, in either in September or October, like, right after the first film came out, like, they were, they were, they were, they were basically, they had to be, they had to be cast and then shooting within a month, within, like, a month. So, I'm guessing, like, like Rosa Salazar and uh, Giancarlo probably didn't really have much time for, like, the physical training. They got some pretty intense roles, uh, that, that had to be. I wonder if you know they had. I wonder if they had to like cast in mind for people who are already, you know, very physically, uh, you know, fit and able to just jump into this kind of intense schedule. So filming began in October of 2014, uh, just five weeks after the release of the first one. Uh, this time, Hungarian cinematographer Jula Pados served as DP, 
It was primarily shot in and around Albuquerque, New Mexico. They used a real abandoned mall for the sequence when they first ran into the cranks. And similarly, uh, Jorge's kind of domain was shot at a real uh, rail yard. The third act was shot in the mountains of Colorado. Uh, This one had a shooting schedule of 94 days, which is over twice as long as what they had uh, for the previous film. John Paisano returned to score the movie, and it was released on September 18th of uh, 2015, exactly one year after the first film was released. Which, for a, this, like, this is not like a little tiny drama. This is a enormous effects-heavy blockbuster. I don't know. How does that even happen? Like, two years is kind of the in- industry standard to get a sequel out. Oh, man, that's crazy. And so I'm assuming... Uh, you have pretty much the same experience. Uh, you you saw this film uh, for underrated. Uh, what were your thoughts then, and have they changed over the last year? So uh, I like this one considerably more than the first one on the first watch. Uh, I remember it was unfortunately at a time in which school was really hectic, so I think I I had to watch it with like three different sittings with just a lot of pausing. Um, but even still, despite the fact that I'm sure that kind of hurt my my appreciation of the film's pacing. Uh, I still just really, really enjoyed it as a film. Uh, and then rewatching it again um, for The Death Cure, I, I think I noticed some issues more so the second time, but I think I also walked away appreciating what I already liked even more, that I don't think I liked it any less. Um, but because of how much I enjoyed the first one more, it, it became a lot a lot more difficult for me to, to decide which one I liked uh, more between the two. But, but yeah, I, I really enjoyed it the first time and, and I've really, I've maintained that enjoyment of it since. Yeah. So I, I saw this in theaters when it came out, you know, already being a big fan of the Maze Runner and I liked it a lot. I didn't like it quite as much as the first one, but it kind of just got swept up into my championing of this series and my, the way I was championing West ball. And so, yeah, I, I've, been a big fan i've seen it many many times over the last uh what through fourth almost four years thing uh since then so yeah that's my story with it so just to get into the, the film um this one right off the bat is just a much bigger more ambitious uh film than the previous one which was a you know very contained it kind of it played but the first one was this very you know tight contained story where they were, you know they were in a single location this one is kind of a, a not necessarily a road trip movie but it's a, a, a kind of an odyssey where they're just traveling over these these huge landscapes and going from place to these these all these different very unique and interesting locations and you know he you know he they doubled the budget this one had i think like a 64 million dollar budget which isn't remotely what i would have guessed i would have guessed 120 150 million looking at it, just the way he used the locations they're able to get to the shots they got the, the amount of cgi like they built you know they have that entire destroyed city and it's completely it's completely convincing you know done on this you know very very modest budget yeah just speaking of that i love the world of this movie um just everywhere we are be it like the desert just the way he's just the desert that kind of cold blue or you know the the abandoned mall is a a very good set it's it's you know they just found a mall and just threw dust around and kind of tore it down a little bit but i don't know what it is because we've seen we've seen plenty of post-apocalyptic stories before but he he found a way to make it look completely fresh just i i don't recall ever seeing anything you know quite like the way he does this mall 
And then, you know, and then just the way he lights it with a lot, you know, the, the flashlights is just very atmospheric. Then, but then the desert, the way we get to the scorch, and just, just always, like, always in the distance, just like a building sticking out of the sand or like a bridge. It's kind of these, like, very subtle CG composites where we have the characters in the foreground and just the CGI extensions that just make this the, the world feel so huge and expansive. We talked about the abandoned city. Like, there's just things like the, 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 the leaning building, which is such a unique thing um just the, the locations he found in the mountains of colorado is just it's always a very interesting visually engaging um location i think you know is one of the big things that makes his budget go so much farther just just find a cool place to shoot and as long as you have you know a decently cinematic eye you could make it look like a million bucks yeah so that first the first film to me is, is just a great looking movie but this one is just absolutely gorgeous um the color palette of this film is phenomenal. Uh, running through the lightning storm is yes. absolutely incredible. Like, and I, I noticed now that the lightning is striking cars, so they're able to have like practical explosions for each lightning strike. So there's like this is always an element of practicality, and it's not all just CGI. That's got to go a long way of just like making it feel more tangible and dangerous and you know as as someone who who myself and, and you as well like really appreciate someone like snyder's visual flair i get i get a little bit of of his vibe in, in some of these scenes where it's a, a lot of the colors especially you know with what he did in Watchmen, a lot of the scenes are just drenched in this just super deep blues and and uh, like any color there, it's 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 super saturated and it, it and not in a an overbearing way. It just it feels so right in the moment. And, and the cinematography is fantastic. Some of these chase scenes are some of the best chase scenes I've ever seen. Yeah, I think Dylan O'Brien is gonna take a Tom Cruise's uh, crown as the best Hollywood runner if he's that careful. Um, yeah, just the, the, especially in the mall sequence is like low, sh- the shots that are kind of low to the ground, just following them for like you know, 10, 15 seconds of just running flat out. And you just, all the, you know, the, the parked cars and just objects are whipping by and there's these just beautiful compositions is perfectly lit and they're great. These silhouettes. I don't know. It's so good. And just throughout the entire film. He just finds a way to light it to make it so distinctive. And a lot, there's a lot of dark, like shots that are you know, fairly dark. A lot of night night shooting. Um, speaking of blue, the uh, the lab where they find all the kids strung up. It's just it's like this pure, like ultraviolet blue light, drenching everything. Makes it so eerie. Um, yeah, just all over the the movie. It's, it just looks gorgeous, as you said. Um, but just speaking of, again, just actually, since we're talking about the running, the action sequences, I think he even upped his game here. I love the action in the previous one, but, you know, getting a bit more budget, he'd be able to, you know, get out in the open and make it bigger, you know, running from the lightning. Just the sequence with the cranks in the mall is, I think, as, as you know, as, as thrilling as anything in the maze. By the way, I love the way he builds up to it, to where he's, he like, again, he's this visual storytelling where, you know, we're seeing, we're following the footprints. You know, Teresa's finding the picture of the little girl. We're finding the, the guy who's who strength, you know, committed suicide. And then it's all kind of telling a story leading up to the revelation of the little girl he had in the shrine with her eyes plucked out. It's like, like he's like he was actually. If you watch, he's telling a story of of, of whoever the survivor was with his girl who's who became a crank and he had to lock her up and then he committed suicide. Like all that's happening with no dialogue, no one saying anything, and then the cranks come out and. We're just running, you know, for like five minutes, just 
barely out of reach. And, and, you know, we've had fast zombies before, you know, the 28 Days Later, World War Z. um, I Am Legend, kind of. I Am Legend, kind of. Like, we've had it before, but... there's just there's there's a sense of scale that he I think he, he he brings a sense of scale to it while also never losing kind of the claustrophobia of being trapped in an abandoned mall, and just the the shot we mentioned in underrated the, the shot of them running up the escalator this big wide shot they're running up an escalator and just the flashlights are illuminating the entire uh the thing just kind of waving around just the way he uses the flashlights within the action sequence they just it it's like a a crazy unique visual stamp that I I just love. Yeah, the the action in this film is what makes up for I guess the the slight shortcomings. You know, the the first film is just so tight and efficiently told, and and I think for a movie that's just a bunch of chase scenes while also having the burden of of explanation and giving a lot of story, since the first one was so sparse, I think this movie is really really well told and really efficient. Uh, maybe a little bit more excess than the first one, but what makes up for whatever excess is there is just this. You know the, the way he upped the ante in the action. All of these scenes are just so well done. Uh, the mall chase is incredibly shot. Like like you said, that that's something that's been in my mind ever since I saw it the first time. Is just these long shots and the flashlights just waving around these clear arcs. Just it's so cool to watch and and the way he keeps a sense of of momentum during those scenes. We, as a viewer, feel like we're always on the move, and the camera's always following something that's not static to like to follow through. Like when they're like kicking the crank off of the the platform and falling. Like it's just where there's always something interesting going on. We're never just plop down there watching things cool happen in frame. We're we're almost in on the action as well. And then the chase through the broken down skyscrapers is incredible. We we've seen the whole like. Oh, you know, we're lying down on on glass. It could break, you know, with any move. We, that's been done so many times. But I think of but all the But now with a crazy zombie. <laughs> exactly. Or just like, you know, this post-apocalyptic hellscape. And so I think of, of all of the times we've seen it, this, is, this iteration is probably the one that has me most on edge. Uh, the shots of, from underneath looking up as we follow the crack. It's just... It's so cool, and and so when you have someone who like like Ball who's just directing with with such fluidity uh, and such like craftsmanship, and the scene also happens to take place in these beautifully realized sets and CGI locations and everything. It's just they're, they're iconic in in every aspect, just in the way they're shot and in where they're shot at. They're, the action is just so engaging in this movie, and I I really love the final battle as well. Um... It's a very, I don't know how you would even stage it because it, 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 there's no battle lines. It's just kind of this chaotic free for all with everybody kind of shooting at everybody else and just running around and helicopters are crashing. But I think there's a very clear story he, the way he tells in that. It's very exciting. He uses the lighting and things like Jansen running out of the smoke and backhanding Thomas or. I mean, the, the way the music builds right after uh, Brenda shoots Jans, it just it's, it's just thrilling. I think, and I'm going to mention that that track again, but I think he just builds an, an incredibly exciting action suits, which out of something that, that I think in the hands of you know 90 percent of other directors would have been utter chaos. He just tells this really exciting story with a, you know a clear emotional through line and these the visuals that are constantly building excitement, building energy, and and, and um keeping us engaged with and just also being beautiful all the time um 
there's a couple new characters that I, I want to highlight. I think, uh, you know, Rosa Salazar, she, she got a chance to, you know, to star in Alita and she's fantastic in Alita. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's a side role here, but I think she's really good. Uh, you know, she play a, a very tough character, but I think there's a, it doesn't make the mistake of, I think you know, a lot of you, know, when you got to have a tough female character, you just make them emotionless. She, she has, a, I think there's a very strong emotional core to the person and they, she forms a very believable and, you know, connection with Thomas, you know, you know, as we get into relearning her history, his history, I think it's a, it's a, it's a very good friendship. Um, and then I, th- I love her relationship with Jorge. Like we, we don't know all that much about them, but I think just, you know, a few scenes in, we kind of know everything we need to know about these two people, this kind of found family they've created where he absolutely loves her as a daughter. And even though they, you know, they, they're not probably not related and just the, the, the way, Giancarlo Esposito, who is absolutely fantastic, plays that, and he's this kind of crazy guy, or he, I think he kind of plays crazy, like he's a good man who somehow found himself at the top of this rabble of, of like really degenerate criminals, so he has to play that he's evil, and he's always afraid that the world's going to collapse around him. It's just a, a very fun character. Um, the scene after uh, after Thomas, you know, gives his blood to save. Brenda and Thomas comes out of the tent. He just comes up and hugs him. He's like, you just want to cry. He's, it's again, it's, it's a character that could have just been, oh, goofy, quirky. And, you know, West Ball gives these fantastic ashes. He hired, you know, chances to, without any dialogue, to just in, in, inhabit these people and give us emotion that I don't, you know, most of the films would never give us a chance to see. Yeah. One of the things that I really enjoy about this is, is something that the first one did really well as well that you touched on a bit, which is just, we're introduced into a world and into relationships and it's kind of on us to infer the things we're meant to get out of it. Like everything feels so firmly established, you know, in the first one, just the way the glade operates. And then here, like you said, their relationship, the movie doesn't go out of its way to give us a whole lot of information about how they, how they met, what's going on, just what the setup is here, how it all came to this. But because of the way specifically just with the way Rosa Salazar and uh, Giancarlo Esposito play off of each other, it feels so established. Like, you don't have to sell me on how it came here. I've, I've already bought into this relationship. Like, mm-hmm. this is believable. This is the way it works. I- I'm totally in for this. And the way they're kind of adopted into our core, you know, set of characters as well. Yeah, it feels supernatural. Like, it makes sense. It's, you know, by the end of it, they are, you know, our new main characters. Um, and I also really, uh, I think they do a really good job with that stuff, um, with the, with the rest of the film, like with Aiden Gillen's character, um, when we get there, just the movie does a good job of making us experience and learn and grow with these other characters. Like when we're first in there sitting in that cafeteria area, like we feel just as confused and out of place as, as the characters there do. And and we're slowly learning about things and inferring things from from what we're seeing, and rarely is it ever just being spoon fed to us. And um, and when you've got someone as good as Aiden Gillen, like it, it makes it all worth it because he's he's pretty much fantastic in whatever he's in. And I I think another thing that this movie does really well in it in its casting is when you have people like Aiden Gillen and uh, Alan Tudyk and Giancarlo Esposito, um, it lends almost credibility not that the movie really needed it but it just it makes it feel like this is like this is a real serious movie like this is a movie to be taken seriously it's excellent direction fantastic cast you know solid names uh, 
it's just almost every aspect about it is just is kind of on top form here. Yeah, this was my introduction to both uh, Giancarlo Esposito and Aiden Gillen. I hadn't seen Game of Thrones or Breaking Bad. I've seen both since then, um, but yeah, I, I fell in love with both these actors this time. You know, they're 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 not no no one's phoning in. They're totally going for it. And Aiden Gillen's this wonderful kind of you know, sleaziness about him that like half Irish accent he's doing throughout and. Uh, just he's, he's 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 having so much fun the way he's he's just playing these kids and he pro- probably kind of a psychopath underneath and he just enjoys it. He could be a great Bond villain, I think. Yeah. So I I guess just to get into uh, you know maybe some of the the film's shortcomings. Um, all, in my opinion, there's there's not really a whole lot there. Um, the the scene where they they go and they they drink whatever that is and you've got that short little implication of a love triangle like what's hilarious is like this is so mild in comparison to the rest of the (laughs) ya genre but it's because we came away from a movie that pretty much entirely avoided it it almost sticks out here but i think just to be fair to the film if if the cost of like a movie as tightly paced and as well directed as this is just like a scene that almost feels like a, a bone being thrown to the typical YA fans, then I, I mean, I guess I'll happily pay it because it kind of comes and goes and and it, it slows down the pacing a bit. It feel, it it really feels out of place in the moment. Uh, yeah. As much as I love Alan Tudyk and just how, how totally invested <laughs> he is in the character and how much he pours himself into this role, none of this really feels necessary and does a lot for the film. And, and I think it's also just a little bit jarring considering, like, we we stop moving. Like, previously, we were moving at a breakneck pace, going through all of these all of these great different scenarios, and then we just kind of stop and get hit with this weird thing. Um, and, it, and it's just something that's pretty much entirely absent from the previous film. Yeah, criticism a lot of people have for this one is it doesn't really have a lot of story. Like, there's not, there's, like by the time you, you, you began and end, it doesn't feel like all that much has happened. And, and that's not entirely unfair. But I, I just, I, I think there's a really cool heart to this series. Um, it doesn't have a lot of themes to say out about, about outside the film. Like so many YA films, you know, they, they're they often have a very strong message. They're very political about what they're trying to say, and these, these, you know, I think there's elements of that if you want to find it. But I think he just he just made West Ball just came in and he just he decided to make a story about characters. You know, just don't pay too much attention to the convoluted plot or all the weird reasons for why things are happening just this is a story about people you know we, we open up with these people they're they're trapped they're desperately trying to get out they escape and now they realize that their you know their entire lives are being controlled by this organization this film is all about them just desperately trying to find some kind of autonomy where where just the, the threat is just total control from this organization literally just that little, you know, wants to drain their blood out. And then you know, as the, going into the third film, you know, they, they spend this entire film just running, 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 trying to find something. And the third film is kind of, they, they found their idea. They found an identity, they found a purpose. And then they're, they're kind of fighting back. I think it's a very solid arc across the trilogy. And I will grant there's not a lot of drama, although I, I do think there's a very, there's some very interesting stuff going on with Teresa, as far as things, you know, questions of identity where, you know, when Thomas first tells her in the maze, you know, we were with them, you know. We were the bad guys. We put them here. She, you know, she reacts with absolute horror and and shock. Like I would never do that. But then, you know, once she has been given back her memories and she remembers all the whys of why she did that, she's. It's like, 
you know, losing her memory didn't make her a different person. But, you know, gaining her memories back, you know, all the logical pathways that led her to her decisions kind of come back in. And I love the way it's told throughout, throughout the entire story. Like, there's always a little hint, you know, where she's kind of lagging behind or she's getting second glances or kind of questioning Thomas, you know. there's The seeds are all perfect to her final betrayal, are all just very clearly laid out throughout the entire film. But even then, you, you're like Thomas. Thomas, you know, wants to believe the best of everyone. You know, he's, he's the protector. He's the leader. He's he's just trying to make sure everyone's safe. And Teresa's part of the group, so he, 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 he never even thinks to doubt her, even though all the signs are obvious. So even at the end, when you finally realize that she betrayed her, like, you don't even want to believe it, that, that she would do that. And yet, I think, you know, given Caius Scodelaria's performance um, and, you know, the seeds laid out and, you know, a very that really heartbreaking story she tells about her mother. Like it's a, it's a very believable choice. Like one that you kind of, you, you hate that she made that choice, but it's never one. Like it never feels like, Oh, this character would never do that. It doesn't feel like a betrayal of the character. It's, it's just a very real heartbreaking decision. And, and you still in a weird way care about it. You don't like instantly start hating her, even though you know, she did this horrible thing to her friends and to the people you care about too. It's, like, I think it's just a very well-rounded character and very, you know, very well-realized uh, motivations. Yeah, she really did not have a lot going on in the first one, but I love what they do with her character here. I, th- I think between uh, Scorch Trials and Death Cure, this is maybe one of the most nuanced characters in a YA film, just what they explore. And it does something that I love, which is a lot of the times movies use the whole erase memory thing to, like, reinvent a character, to be like, I'm not... Like, somehow not remembering the previous life absolves them of the sins and, and things like that. But here, you've got that initial reaction of, no, uh, yeah, I, I would never do that. And then, like you said, the logic plays out through her head. She's still the same person. She goes back there. And then, and again, they avoid the one-note kind of, I'm a bad guy now. She's still the same person. And I find myself still caring for her as a character in both this and the third film. Um, and the fact that they don't like lazily backtrack on this, you know, they they set this up super well with that story that you're talking about with with her mom. Uh, you feel like there's there's so much sincerity from her performance, and that you know there's a lot of conviction in her character about it. In her mind, you know, this is the right thing to do. It's just it's just so surprisingly layered for for these kinds of films, and it, it's why I think you know these when these kinds of films are, are really shallow, it's why they have no excuse because we have other films like this that, that do uh, present characters like this. Um, and so, yeah, even, even after the movie starts to, I wouldn't even say sag, but after it slows down a little bit, we've, we've got these twists coming up that, that take us off guard while also maintaining like cohesion with what we've already known. And, you know, it, it picks itself up super quickly. If you can ever even say that it was, it was even really down. Yeah. And I, I like the way character, the character of Thomas is kind of presented as the protector, the person who kind of just steps up because he had, you know, he sees his, he sees a need, he sees his friends in danger. He's just gonna, even though he's the newest guy to the group, he's, you know, adopted them all as family. And, you know, people come along like Eris, like, you know, Brendan, Jorge, they all just kind of, he just kind of like, brings them into his group and he's always everything he's doing is trying to keep them safe like even you see that even in the action scenes like he's always kind of lagging behind helping people kind of pushing everyone making sure everyone's safe just i i, I love how just you know between dylan o'brien and west ball you know, in the staging and in the choreography of the scenes they're always just giving us 
character stuff, you know, and you, you know, it, they're not coming out of the way. You don't, they're not going to just tell it to you. You have, you know, you, if you're watching, it's there for you to see if you care to look. Um, and I just, I, I think it's a, I, it's a character that I find very, um, that I really find myself connecting to just this person who's just desperately trying to keep everyone together. And there's this, like the scene after, um, I think it's Winston, you know, it gets infected and just the look on his face, like he doesn't even know this guy all that well. Like all the other people around him are better friends with Winston. Yet he, you see all like the failure he feels like he doesn't, he's, he failed. Like he, he, he's lost a person in his group and he has no idea how to even, you know, how, what to do with that. Uh, it's, you know, a very powerful performance, I think. Yeah, I again, I, I don't dislike him at all. And I think I enjoyed his performance even more here now that he's had time to to form relationships with these people. I, th- I think he's good with a lot of the dramatic stuff he's given. So, so moving to a discussion of the score, I like the music a lot in this one. I don't like it as much as the first one. I think uh, my, my big issue with, the, with, I guess, between the two is that the, the kind of the soulfulness and the sense of mystery that were such a big part of the Maze Runner score isn't as present. This one is mostly a lot of like either horror tracks or action tracks, and they're all very effective, but you know, they, they don't make, they're not all that interesting to listen to outside the film. It's just much more kind of propulsive without having as much of the, the soul of the score that the first film had. Um, but one of the most interesting things I found is that the Maze Runner theme from the first film becomes the w- Wicked's theme for this film. Like whenever it's only ever played you know, during moments with Wicked, you know, when Wicked's haunting them or Wicked's winning, it's which I found to be kind of an interesting thing. I guess if I don't kind of like a philosophical level, if, if if like the maze was Wicked's ultimate work, now like the music that we identify with that is always going to be kind of identified with them. I found it interesting. So going through some of the tracks, uh, there's a track called Opening. Uh, it, it it opens with, the film opens with kind of a flashback, so this very quiet otherworldly kind of ethereal take on the, the the you know the main theme that plays during the flashback is c- kind of mournful that we have like some really like a burst of excitement and adrenaline as you know we come back to reality and the cranks show up and all that um then there's the farm it opens with this really uneasy techno beat with a, again a little bit a little bit of the uh, the wicked theme and it, it kind of it as you know we're seeing all the people hung up it's moving kind of between horror and tragedies it's playing this really uneasy line between the between the two and then there's a bit more of that kind of the flashback music from the opening that was pretty cool um there's goodbye which is the scene where winston uh kills himself and it i I think i thought was really cool is it very subtly leans into this like the sad piano music from chat with chuck which has kind of become like our theme for mourning with the, in the scores trial, like that, that, that kind of piano music that we had that was attached to Chuck is now present whenever our characters are kind of mourning or reminiscing about, you know, friends lost, which I think is another really interesting touch. Um, but also the, I like the thing I like about this track is that there's a real sense of like uneasiness about it. It's not just, it's not just pure tragedy. There's just, it, it just, there's something that feels off about it that I, I found very interesting. Then there's friends. This is just a, a really nice, energetic, hopeful piece of music. It's it's like pleasant, which is kind of like after a lot of like really intense music, it's like, it's just a kind of a pleasant piece. It's like not not sappy at all, but just kind of energetic. I, 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 hard to explain. Um, then there's a chat with Brenda. This is like very sad yet hopeful. It has the callbacks to the chat with Chuck piano music. Um, it's just kind of like a very cathartic and healing uh, song I think it, or piece of music. 
Um, let me go up to my two favorite tracks in the score. Uh, first one is Tired of Running. This is the one that plays over the big climactic action set piece. I think it's one of my all-time favorite action tracks. Uh, it's like really th- thrilling. It's like full of this hope and confidence. It's this constant just building and building of excitement and just determination. Um, but also, it's, it, it, I think a lot like uh, that track, um, the, the finale track from the first score it's also like telling a full story because it's you know it starts out with a lot of the the hope and excitement but then it it goes into like this full-on operatic tragedy as Mino is captured with these like really beautiful vocals and then it it kind of ends on this like sense of like somber determination and resolution as the kind of the lines are drawn between our characters like it just tells a full story you know while being a really exciting action track that i quite love um and finally, there's what's next. Uh, this is like it's 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 the 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 chat with Chuck theme, which is what I'm gonna call it. But uh, but played in like this very focused, resolved way. More, it's it's like this constant build of de- just uh, determination, and like just we are you know as, as kind of all our characters come together. You know, they spend the entire film running, and now they've you know they found a purpose and. And, you know, being the chat with Chuck theme, I think that purpose would be each other, the friendship. You know, it's, it's about all about each other. Um, and that, that's kind of told through the music. And I like that, you know, there's there's not even a trace of the Maze Runner theme. Like if in the first one, like whenever excitement happened, the Maze Runner theme would come in here. It's like it's as if, you know, they've spent the entire the entire two films, their lives have been defined by Wicked. You know, they've Wicked has just been playing games with them. And now they've come full circle where they're, they're, you know, they've ha- they have their own destiny. So there's, there's not even a trace of Wicked's theme anymore, which I, th- I found just pretty interesting musically. Going to our star rating and our ranking, what would you rate this out of five stars? So I think my thoughts are pretty similar to the, the first one. I think this movie has you know more discernible flaws than the first one did, but I also think that the strengths this one had were, were even more so strengths here. And so I, I fall back down on, on four stars uh, as for ranking it, I think just my subjective enjoyment, I think I actually prefer this one. Um, you know, as much as I really do enjoy the first one, I think whenever I, like, if I'm just, if I hear Maze Runner, like, yes, the first thing I, I see is just the glade in my head. But then when I when I think about it and think about why, why I really love the trilogy, like, I think about just his action direction and then that just takes me to like my two favorite sequences, which is you know the escape from the mall and and the chase through the uh, through the skyscrapers. And I think just dramatically, um, this movie works a bit more for me. Um, I think the the emotions I feel I feel a lot stronger here than the first. You know, like we had we had solid emotional moments like the the death of Chuck from the first one, but it was also kind of intermingled with the the revelation and and stuff going on there. Um, whereas here, I, I, I found myself much more invested in this film's finale with, with the betrayal with Teresa and her reasoning and just the really, really solid action, uh, climax going on and, and that sense of determination and purpose that you actually, you really get by the, by the end of the film. Just overall, like despite its increased flaws, I, I'm just more invested and entertained, um, on a whole and it's incredibly close and i i think even during this recording i was still having to argue with myself uh, but as for now yeah I, I think this is my favorite i would actually give it 3.5 out of five stars um i like it a lot i find it very entertaining 
movie just like moment to moment the entertainment value that this movie brings is way off the charts um like just i think as an entire experience like thinking about it outside it, it does it comes with a lot a lot of little holes here and there like this there there's there's a lot of story issues with this thing thing but none of those really matter while you're watching it is kind of come up afterwards um so yeah i give it 3.5 and i would rank i would rank uh it first you know the maze runner then the scorch trials as far as my uh, preference for the films but yeah, you know, it's just a very fun movie. So on its initial release, it earned 81 million domestically and 230 million in the foreign markets for a worldwide total of 312 million on its 61 million dollar budget. That's about a 46 million dollar drop uh, from the Maze Runner. I mean, still highly profitable because the budget it didn't cost them all that much. They kept the budget tight, so it definitely it made a lot of money, but. It, it not not as much as the first film. I think the the critical reception and, and audience reception was also a lot more mixed than the first one. Uh, it holds a forty seven percent on Rotten Tomatoes and a forty three on Metacritic. Again, a lot of praise was given to the action, the direction, uh, but uh, the story was real. I think the story was really criticized. Just it didn't, it did, it just didn't really catch on at all with critics and the audiences. The audience uh, polls as well are, are fairly mixed down the middle. Um, when I hear people talk about it, it seems like they 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 like they like the action, but they this one seems to be more dismissed, even more than the first one, as oh, just a YA film kind of thing. Yeah, I, I think some of that may just be because the the first one may may have carved itself out as being more unique within the genre, whereas you know, like if you want, you can try to draw more parallels between this one and and like the other YA adaptions that were huge. People who were big fans of the first one, I think uh, this one it was it was weird because this is where the book fans kind of ha- had their say. You know, there were there were major story changes between the book and the film, and I think a lot of the book fans kind of hated it for that reason. Um, I think people who just liked the first film, from for the most part, seemed to like this to enjoy this one pretty well. Uh, yeah, it just it doesn't get nearly as much just discussion all around as the first one. It just kind of gets lumped in. And uh, yeah, so it's, it's kind of hard to tell what the overall thoughts are. I mean, well, I guess that 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 is the overall thoughts that there isn't much. All right, uh, so that was the maze run of the Scorch Trials. I, ho- uh, I hope you guys enjoyed it, and if you did, uh, I'd like to ask you guys again to please head over to iTunes and le- and subscribe, and then also leave us a five star rating and review. Uh, that would be very helpful. Uh, if you want to follow us on Facebook, if you want to like us on Facebook, where there is at Franchise Food Podcast. If you want to follow us on Twitter and Instagram, we are there as at FranchisePod. And if you want to find our other episodes, you can go to FranchiseFoodiePodcast.com. And where can people follow you, James? Uh, so you can follow me on Letterboxd. I am there as J.L. Hamry. It's J-L-H-A-M-R-I. Uh, as I said on the last episode, I want to start writing a little bit more during spring break, and we'll see if I can, I can get some reviews out. Um, and then, once again, please join us over at The Outer Rim, a Star Wars fan group. We're, we're in full swing now going through Attack of the Clones with the series chronologically. Um, and so if you're looking for some positive discussion, definitely welcome over there. Uh, and I'm also on Letterboxd and there is Gabriel Green. I'm on Twitter as at Gabe A. Green and on Instagram as Gabe the Great Green. Uh, so for next week, we will complete the Maze Runner trilo- trilogy with The Death Cure. I'm really looking forward to having a full discussion. It was kind of painful. <laughs> so many things I wanted to talk about. We just kind of had to breeze over because of the, the uh, mini-sode structure. But uh, I'm looking forward to having a full episode to just dive into every stupid little detail. I think it does us good to try to be efficient. But I am too off looking forward to uh, to just being able to go over it. Doesn't do me. <laughs> All right. Uh, so until next week, we will see you in the sequel. It's a great speech, kid. But what's your plan?